Adults, what gets you anxious? What, what, what gets you all stirred up inside? Worrying and, and, and doubting God. How about flying? Anybody else not like flying? I don't like flying. Not at all. You know, you, you like tense up and you're sensitive. You're aware of like every movement the plane is making the whole time. Does that make you more safe? Worrying about it the whole time? Spending that energy? How about being late? If you're late going somewhere, red lights know when you're late, don't they? And you just you start to boil over. You get all worked up because you're going to be late. And does that get you there faster? I had to turn around this morning because I forgot something. So funny, I'm, I'm preaching to you on anxiety when just so many times this week, it just, it just came out in me. I could just see it everywhere. It's like when you get a new car and then you see everybody driving that car everywhere. I saw anxiety everywhere this week. How about this, though? How about not just certain circumstances or certain situations that you find yourself anxious in? What about life in general? Do you feel like life is just coming at you all the time? You ever feel that way? All of that's anxiety. You know, probably familiar with the proverb that says, anxiety in the heart of man weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Well, I've got a good word for you this morning from Matthew chapter 6. Let's read here beginning in verse 25, where Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore be not anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all those things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. These are the words of the one true and living God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you know us and are near to us. And we thank you for these comforting words that remind us we belong to you that the earth is yours and the fullness thereof, that you are the author of time and that you never change. Your promises are as good today as they were yesterday and will be for eternity. Lord, be with me now as I preach, I pray. Help me to be clear, prevent me from error. Be with your hearers, 
Help them to be alert and attentive to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's walk through these verses here. Jesus starts out in verse 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. He begins with the therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? It's always a good question as you read God's word so that you can examine it carefully, so that you can keep up, so you know where you are. You just got finished talking about how overvaluing the things of the world can skew our perceptions of ourselves, skew our perceptions of God's provision for us and what life's all about. We talked last week a little bit how we can be tempted to live for things that God intends for us to govern, right? We're supposed to live for him, not for stuff. We're supposed to order our desires according to this reality that God is our heavenly father and we are his children. We're supposed to recognize that our lives are not leading to the grave where all the fun is over, but that we're we're heading Godward to eternal life with him. And that being the case, therefore, Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will wear. And he reasons with us there, beginning of verse 25, uh, at the end of verse 25, excuse me. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Aren't our lives more valuable than the sum of, of our parts of our body and, and the things that make them tick. You know, isn't a clock more valuable than the little cogs and screws and glass that it's made of? Like a clock, you were made for a purpose by your creator and its purpose is of infinitely more, more value than the pieces and parts that it's made of. You need food, you need clothing, But those things only emphasize the greater value and dignity of the thing being fed and and covered. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Then in verse 26, Jesus starts pulling from their immediate surroundings to prove his point. And I love how Jesus does this. I mean, he's he's the greatest teacher and, and the greatest pastor. Look at how he encourages them not to be anxious. He points them to creation itself for examples. He's, stop, take, take a breath. Take a look around you. Take it all in for a minute. He shows them that if they just stop and look, they would see God's hand in everything. They would see the love of their father all around them, all the time. And then verse 26, he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus says, essentially, look look at how your Father's world works. Stop with all the distractions and everything else. Take a look around and just see how things actually are. This is God's world you're living in. And in God's world, everything is relying on his providential hand, and God sustains all of them. Aren't you, then, the only creatures God has chosen to make in his own image more important to him? How much more, then, will he care for you? And yet you're anxious. 
Why? What's, what's that get you? What do you gain by being anxious? He says in verse 27, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? That really gets at it. What do we think we'll gain by being anxious? What good does it do? What can it change? Nothing. You can't squeeze another drop out of life by worrying about it. That's what Jesus says. Then he moves on to this next example from nature specifically about clothing in verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? And he points to the lilies of the field. He says, see how they, they grow? They don't, they don't work or do anything. And, and, and yet your father makes them more splendid than even Solomon. And if you think about that for a second, think, think how must Solomon have appeared to people? Think of, in 1 Kings chapter 10, you can go give that a look later on today. In 1 Kings chapter 10, the queen of Sheba comes and visits Solomon. And she brings a caravan of all her fanciest people and all the finest things and gifts to present before him. And what you read there is that when she gets there, she is blown away. After she sees the, the house that he built and, and the people and the peace among them and the servants and even the servants' clothing, it says there, there was no more breath in her. Breathtaking how the God of Israel had blessed this people in this place. She says, you know, I, I heard something about this, but the half of it was not told me. Jesus says that only ever happens all the time if you stop and look around. Look at the lilies of the field. They just effortlessly pop up out of the dirt, looking more fabulous than even Solomon. And why? Why do they do that? Just because God enjoys beautifying his world. And here's the thing. If they're just decoration, and all that beauty just eventually gets tossed, it just gets plucked up and, and burnt for fuel, how much more important are you? How much more concerned is he with clothing the most noble of all his creation? Oh, you of little faith, he says there. That's the problem, isn't it? It's not that God doesn't actually do these things or he only does them sometimes or he only does them when we're on our best behavior. This is the way God operates and you just choose to doubt him. Anxiety is a symptom of the sickness of doubt. Anxiety in your heart is a symptom of the sickness of doubt. That's what I want for us to get into this morning. That'll be the heading of, of the sermon. Anxiety is a symptom of the sickness of doubt. But Jesus has just given us every reason not to doubt, hasn't he? He's given us a reason to not fret and worry for what we'll eat and what we'll wear. He's told us life is more than these things, and man is more precious to God than anything else in all of creation. And he gives us another, therefore, in verse 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He knows what you need. He is able to supply it. And if we look around, if we look up from what we busy ourselves with, 
and how hard we're trying to get by, we can see that he does, that that is the case. Then Jesus gives his disciples and us instructions. You know, it's, it's not enough to say, don't do this, right? He, he says, do this instead. He says, don't be anxious, but instead, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We spent a long time in the Lord's Prayer. We went through that petition by petition over the course of, I think it was seven weeks. So hopefully you'll remember, we don't begin the prayer by begging our daily bread. We begin by asking God that his name would be hallowed in all the earth, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If you want to busy yourself with something, busy yourself with the kingdom of God and holiness, Jesus says. This other stuff, it's important. But, but God knows you need it. it. It doesn't deserve the attention that you're giving it. What does deserve your attention is God's purposes for redeeming you and calling you sons and daughters. Therefore, let that occupy your mind. Let your thoughts be on these things. And he's not saying fret over it instead. You know, he's not saying don't be anxious for this, but be anxious about this instead. In fact, it's the opposite. No, if your mind was set on God and his kingdom, you would be more at peace. And so, faith, belief, trust is the remedy for anxiety. Doubt is the enemy of peace. And then finally, he assures us again with another, therefore, after he says all these things will be added to you, he says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient, is, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Charles uh, Haddon Spurgeon famously said, anxiety doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only today of its strength. If I'm so concerned about tomorrow and how it's going to go and how it's going to work out and how I'm going to accomplish this and worrying about who might get sick or what might break down, I will be a lousy husband to my wife and father to my children today. You hear me, men? If you want to take your spiritual temperature, husbands and dads, take a look at your wife and kids. If they're unstable and all over the place, it's because you are. If your wife is robbed of joy in her life, it's because there's no joy in you. And so you have none to share with her. If your children are growing up to be anxious about tomorrow, it's because you've shown them that's how to live. You've taught them to live in the great wide open unknown of tomorrow instead of living in the here and now. Oh, you of little faith. 
Anxiety is a symptom of the sickness of doubt, and doubt is the enemy of peace. You want peace? Are you aware of your need of it, that it's lacking? Does your heart desire it? Do you want peace? Take a look around and see your God at work in the world. Trust him. Trust that you, as an adopted child into his family, are of more value to him than you've ever dared believe. It's not a deficiency in God. Concern yourself with his purposes in the world and your life. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and the many ways you can spend your energy there. And that will be a life well lived that is inoculated from anxiety and the cares of the world. This is one of those places where we go, ah, sounds easy. It's always easier said than done. This shouldn't surprise you. But I'm not making this up, am I? This is how God operates. The way we operate is just to accept anxiety, like it's just part of life. What's not supposed to be, not for, not for the redeemed of God. I have two points for us to consider this morning. Jesus is telling us uh, not to be anxious, and he gives us reasons, so let's look at those, okay? Let's look at the reasons Jesus tells us not to be anxious. We shouldn't be anxious because, first of all, God is in control. And we shouldn't be anxious because God cares. Those are the two points. God cares. God is in control and God cares. Jesus shows us God is in control in these verses. What he also shows us indirectly is that we're not. We're not in control. And that should be a relief to us. Not, not a source of more anxiety. But for us, because we're so set on ourselves and our wills being done, because we are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, who believe deep down we are gods, with godlike power, at least over our own lives, finding out we're not in control devastates us. It hurts. When things don't go our way or according to our plans, we come out of the frame, don't we? That might look like an angry outburst. Saying things maybe you wish you could take back. Saying things you say you don't mean, but yes, you did, because Jesus tells us that out of an abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Could look like an angry outburst. Could be, uh, look like depression, turning into yourself, right? Isolating yourself and licking your wounds in private, quietly. Either way, we don't do well with unwelcome reminders that we are not gods and we are not in control. That makes us anxious. But what Jesus does is he tells us to welcome it. This fact that we're not in control. To welcome it. Not just deal with it, but welcome it. He's not showing his disciples that God is in control in a way that says, let me show you who's boss. No, he's showing them in a way that says, relax. You have a father who has this under control. I know you don't, but he does. Someone's in charge here, and it's a good thing because you'd mess it up if you were. 
He's got it under control. He says, just look, just look. And what's he have them look at? He has them look at creation. They look at creation and think, oh, how about that? Yeah, I didn't make that. I didn't will that into existence, and yet there it is. You know, think about Job, uh, when God answers him in his anxiety. He answers Job in his anxiety. He says, uh, you know, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who do you think measured this all out and built it? You know, where were you when the foundations were set? When the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. Suddenly, in that moment, Job starts to feel very, very small. You know what else he feels? Safe. For the first time in a long time. Feels safe. Assured that God is in control. Same thing Jesus does here with his disciples. He points at creation and reminds them God creates and God sustains what he creates. We're not in control. He is. And that's good news. It's not bad news. It should be a relief to us. It should feel like a, a burden has been lifted off of us. It shouldn't be a, a source of more anxiety. You know, if realizing we're not in control causes us anxiety, it reveals, again, that there's doubt in us, that we have little faith. You know, notice there, Jesus doesn't say no faith, does he? He says little faith. He's not talking to non-Christians. This is not addressed to everyone. It's addressed to those who already have the benefit of calling God our Father. It'd be, it'd be different if we had no faith. If we had no faith, we should be anxious. We'd have hell waiting on us and not knowing when it was coming. That's worth fretting over. That's worth the tossing and turning. That's worth losing sleep over. Knowing that you'll suffer for all of eternity for your sins against an almighty God whose wrath burns against the wicked every day. That would be worth fretting over. That should drive you to your knees to cry out for forgiveness. But for the Christian who has been forgiven, no, no cause of worry. God is in control, and this almighty God is our Father. He's got this. Jesus is encouraging us who have faith. Not going from zero to some, but from some to more. He's encouraging us who have faith that there's more to be had. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you stopped at saving faith? The disciples' problem is our problem. They believe in Jesus, they just don't believe Jesus. We trust him with our eternity, but not our lives. Do you have faith that saves, but not enough faith to trust God and the details? That's the question. 
That's weird, isn't it? To have enough faith God will raise you up on the last day, but not enough faith to believe he'll get you through a broken down car? Or a failed business? Or a failed relationship? Or a bad investment? Or even a lost loved one? Jesus wants his disciples to have faith in greater measure. Hear me when I say this, Christian. Jesus does not want you to just die with faith, but to live by faith. He wants us to be assured of God's capability. And when we stop and consider this world that he spoke into existence, a world made of words, we see his greatness and we rely on his power and not our own. Jesus tells his disciples to consider their own lives. He says, isn't it more important, isn't your life more important than what you feed it, what you put on it? You know, he calls to our attention, in fact, where'd that life of yours come from anyway? Did you plan it? Did you have to fret over being knit carefully in your mother's womb? Did you have, have to fuss about the way that you came into the world? Or is your life itself a gift of God? Well, if that's true, why are you anxious about all this other stuff that's not in your control? If you're honest, the answer is because you think it will actually get you somewhere. That's why. It worries like a rocking chair. Give you something to do, keep you moving, but it won't get you anywhere. But you think it will. You, you think that you'll get more or you'll, you'll, you'll go farther or you'll, you'll get there faster or you'll somehow be safer or live longer and then you'll be at peace. No, you won't. Because none of those things can offer you peace. God is the source of peace. And your faith in him is the conduit through which you receive it. Not faith in yourself and your ability to acquire comforts and assurances. Only God, only faith in God who you rely on for the comfort and assurance. He supplies that. You know, it's clear here that Jesus knows how we think. He's, he's on to us, right? And he's... He should. He's the God-man. He's God who made man, and he's God who became man. So who could possibly know us better than him? He knows that sin has fooled us into believing in ourselves more than God, and that we actually, as ridiculous as it sounds, we actually believe that we might extend our lives by worrying. If, if we didn't secretly believe that, he wouldn't be addressing it here. But he says, which one of you can add an hour to your life by being anxious? And he snaps us out of that thinking, snaps us out of our self-focus and directs our attention to God and his control over his creation. That's how he solves that tension in us. And then after convincing them, and us hopefully, that God is in control and that we're not, he begins to show them he's not only in control over what we can't control, he also deeply 
cares for us. It's not enough that he's just in control, but he deeply cares for you. That's the next reason we shouldn't be anxious. Shouldn't be anxious because he's in control and we're not. We shouldn't be anxious because God actually deeply cares for us. You ever struggle to believe that? Is that hard for you to imagine? As a Christian with a right understanding of your smallness and God's bigness, do you ever lose sight of how valuable you are to him? That'll cause some anxiety. And that anxiety, remember, we said is a symptom of the sickness of doubt. You doubt God cares as much as he says he does and then you feel all alone out there. You feel uh, ashamed and afraid and naked. Jesus says, come in here and get warm. Have faith. When you begin to think that God cares little for you, it's indicative of a little faith in him. That's what Jesus is addressing here, little faith. It's not that God doesn't care, he only cares a little. He cares a lot and demonstrates his care all of the time. But we become so concerned with the cares of the world that we don't notice. Jesus says, take notice. Look at the birds. See how your heavenly father feeds them. And notice Jesus doesn't say their heavenly father. He says your heavenly father. It's your heavenly father that feeds those birds out there. Can you imagine an earthly father who feeds the creatures outside but won't feed his own children? Can you imagine God feeding them and not you? Look at the lilies of the field and how your heavenly father clothes them. They'll all get gathered up and thrown in an oven, he says. Uh, And God cares enough to make them pleasant anyway. How much more for you who are his child? And this keeps going back to the main theme again that Jesus is driving home in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. He wants his people to know their status, their position, their relationship to the God of creation. That we are his children and he is our father. That's foundational. It's when we forget that that all the other stuff goes awry. Where we forget where our allegiances lie where our hope and security can be found. The instruction Jesus gives us in many different ways is to live as though that were true, that we do have God as our heavenly father, that we are his children. Believe it and act as though you do. Live life in light of the fact that the God of the universe, who is keeping all of the planets and all of the galaxies in perfect orbit around their suns, is competent enough, capable enough, and cares enough to care for you. I want to talk to my bruised reeds here for a minute. You know what I mean, bruised reeds? The Bible says, uh, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. God is gentle And precise. His word 
comforts the afflicted. And it afflicts the comfortable. If you're too comfortable in presuming on the Lord and continuing to live in sin with this sort of double-mindedness that Jesus keeps addressing, where you have one foot in and one foot out, then you need to be uncomfortable. You need to get uncomfortable and quit. But if you are the afflicted, if you are the bruised reed weighed down and burdened by your own sin and wondering how in the world God could ever love you at all, take comfort in these words. God cares for you. Even if you don't. Even if you don't care for you. God does. You can think of a million reasons why he shouldn't and you still won't change his mind. Do you have people judging you? Looking down on you? Jesus looked down on you, came down for you, and took your judgment for you. There's no more guilt there. It doesn't matter what they say. It is finished. Do you feel small and unimportant and lost in the world? Jesus found you. He searched you out. And friend, if he didn't think you were worth it to him, he would not have shed his own blood for your soul. Take comfort that you are more precious to him than you may ever know. Believe him. Believe what he says is true and find rest for your soul. God is in control, not you. You don't have to shoulder the burden of everything working out okay all of the time and God cares for you. You actually matter to him no matter how unworthy you may feel. I want to draw a few points of application so we don't leave this text here in the realm of theory and observation. You know, because you might not be anxious about what you're going to eat next, where your next meal comes from. You might not be anxious about not having clothes to wear tomorrow. So I'd hate for us to, to leave here thinking there aren't ways that we can apply this to our own lives. You know, one of the things we're beginning to emphasize as a church family this year is practicing hospitality. We've talked a little bit about that. We'll continue to talk more about that. Being an inviting people, right? As individuals, as families, as one big family, as a church. Being an inviting people. And some people might have some anxiety about that. What's behind that? I realize I'm probably talking mainly to the ladies. So ladies... What's behind the apprehension to, to have guests into your home? <laughs> I know that's not everyone, but for those of you whose cheeks just got flushed, what's behind that? Are you afraid people will see your house doesn't look like something out of better homes and gardens and judge you for that? Why do you care about that so much? You think people are going to come in with a white glove and find out you haven't dusted? 
Even so, why, why, why does that approval or disapproval matter so much? And maybe you couldn't care less about approval. It has nothing to do with approval or disapproval or embarrassment. Maybe it's just who you know you become when you have people over in your house. You know, you, you, you'd be exhausted, frantically tending to everyone and everything to the point where you entirely miss the benefit of having those people with you in the first place. Just feels like labor. There's no blessing in it. Jesus was with a woman like you once. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This teaching about anxiety suddenly gets really practical, doesn't it? Do you find yourself in Martha's shoes? She, you know, she was fussing over everything to the point where she's just, she's only distracted about the, the background incidental things, you know? And that anxiety in her caused her to not really know where to be or what to do or what to want. Mary knew exactly what she wanted because she knew who she was with. Anxiety, y'all, I want you to think about this. And if you've struggled with anxiety in the past, you know this is true. Anxiety is something that shuts others out and shuts us in what it does we want to break out of that we we want to have a liberating faith that flings the doors wide open and welcomes people in a, a faith that makes strangers into friends we want to seek first the kingdom and part of seeking the kingdom is inviting people into it Another point of application with nothing to do whatsoever with hospitality. How about just general busyness? Sort of just chasing your tail, busy all the time kind of thing. I want you to think about this. This is true in my own life, so I have a, I have a secret to tell you here to hopefully help you come up for air. Here it is. The barrel has no bottom. Do you ever work like a madman, crashing through tasks and checking off lists furiously, trying to work your way to the bottom of the barrel so you can finally relax? It's like every day you wake up and there's a barrel full of sand that you have to dig out by hand, and every handful is a million little things to do. Feed the dog, feed the kids, help the wife, fix the porch, call the guy, schedule the appointment, go to the meeting. And your goal every day is to get out every grain of sand by the end of it so that you can finally rest. You know there's peace down there somewhere. You've just got to dig until you find it. And the faster you dig, the sooner you'll get there. Well, guess what? The barrel has no bottom. 
And if you keep living your life thinking that it does, every day will seem like a blur because you were never really there. You will have lived an anxious life of tomorrows and forfeited all your todays until there are none left. Slow down. Slow down. Take a look around. Have faith that God is in control. And God cares. Does that mean we aren't supposed to think about the future at all? Is, is living by faith just praying and waiting? Is Jesus teaching us that we're not supposed to care at all about uh, how we will feed ourselves or feed our children or clothe our children or our children's future or saving money or any of our responsibilities or any of that? No, not at all. Take the birds for example. They don't just sit around waiting for the hand of God to reach out of the sky and feed them a worm. They know there are such things as worms in God's world. They know where to find them, and they swoop down and snatch one when they need it. But it's the Lord who provides the worm. It's the same thing for us. We trust that God cares enough for us and that his creation is ripe with provision for his creatures, especially those of us made in his own image, especially those of us united to him by faith in his son. We're not meant to fret over the worm. We're meant to give our attention to the one who provides the worm, to go out and get it and receive it with gratitude. And we receive it with gratitude so that we can go about our business. So our business is not fretting about the worms. When we doubt there are such things as worms, to carry on this metaphor or beat it to death, whichever one you choose. When we doubt there are such things as worms or believe that there are worms, but God just doesn't care enough about us to put them within our reach, we become anxious. And that anxiety is a symptom of the sickness of doubt. And it's our faith that casts out all doubts. And it's not a wait and see kind of faith either. Did you pick that up here? It's not a wait and see faith. It's a look and see faith. It's the kind of faith Jesus instructs his disciples to have based on what they can clearly observe if they just stop and take a look around. And what we see, what grows our little faith into big faith and draws us closer to God and to one another is an awareness that God is in control and God cares. Let's pray. Lord our God, Lord, help my unbelief. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few because your people lack faith. Your promises are sure, but we don't believe them because we lack faith. You offer us a peace that surpasses all understanding, but we don't experience that peace in our lives because we lack faith. Help us, Lord, to know our need right now God, we can't have what you don't give, so we're asking, give us large faith. Make us want it and give it to us. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's stand together. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest. Sun, moon, and stars in their courses above join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Radiates thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings, O oh mine, thousand beside. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto Great is thy, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. That's a precious sight. I don't know if you caught that. Now receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
both now and throughout all generations. Amen and amen.